There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Silberstein. And I'm Megan Bojarski. Uh, And welcome to our episode on the 1940 uh, Disney animated film, Pinocchio. Uh, Megan, had you seen Pinocchio? Because it was a revelation to me that you had not seen Snow White the last time we recorded. So have you seen Pinocchio before before doing this uh, project? So... I think it's kind of the same as Snow White. I'd seen scenes of it, which means I probably had seen it when I was like five, but I don't think I'd seen it any time kind of recently. Um, But I had checked in on some of the scenes because of last year. Um, Last year in 2022, there were literally three different Pinocchio adaptations. (laughs) So I had to figure out kind of why, because it's not the anniversary or anything. It was just, 2022 was the year of Pinocchio, oddly. Uh, so I had seen scenes of it. I definitely remembered um, the the donkeys and mm. the fact that they somehow ended up inside of a whale. Um, I will say I was hoping and looking forward to understanding how that happened and uh, was shocked that the movie does not really give an answer to that. <laughs> Geppetto's just in a whale. That's just what it is. Um but yeah, so I had, I had seen scenes from it, and I basically knew the things that everyone knows. You know, it's a puppet, wish on a star, uh, the, uh, the nose growing, which was less prominent than I had expected, oddly enough. But uh, no, I, in at least recent memory, I don't think I'd ever actually seen it all the way through. So it was definitely kind of a wild ride to see where everything went. And I, I had seen two of the three Pinocchio adaptations from last year. I saw the the remake of this movie, and I saw the Guillermo del Toro one uh, that's on Netflix. But I don't remember what the third one was already. <laughs> I was watching the Honest Trailers, I think, for it earlier. And I think they said that it was a Russian version. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, that, that makes sense. Um, but but still, I'm not 100% sure, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you. I believe you that there were three Pinocchio movies last year. I only saw two of them, which is still more Pinocchios than I've tip- than I typically watch in a given calendar year. <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, oddly enough, my family and I do trivia nights, and so I knew more Pinocchio uh, from the book than I did from the movie because it oddly came up in trivia a couple of months ago. Uh, the first line of the book is something to the effect of. Uh, once upon a time, there was a no little girl, little boys and girls. I hear you yelling a king, a prince, a princess. No, there was a block of wood. And apparently that's the first sentence or the first paragraph of the Pinocchio book. So that's 
kind of the connection I had going into this, kind of the weird meta discussion, uh, which was not totally there in, in the movie, but not, not there. Um, and that was honestly kind of all I knew about it. So uh, you definitely had more of a leg up than I did on kind of what to expect from this. This is one that I definitely saw in what was probably its final theatrical re-release when I was very small. Um, and I think it was my younger brother's like first like first movie in the theater that that like we took him to see. Mm. Um, and so I do have that distinct memory. Uh, but as we'll talk about, this is not a movie that I have. I, I have more appreciation than affection for mm. this one, uh, which I think a lot of people probably fall into that camp, uh, which we'll talk more about. But just to, in case it's been a while, in case you didn't take the chance to watch Pinocchio on Disney Plus. Uh, before hitting play on this episode um, as a quick recap uh, Geppetto a puppet maker living in presumably in Italy uh, with his pet cat and his pet goldfish Uh, he makes a lot of clocks he makes a marionette in the shape of a basically life-size human boy he wishes upon a star and the blue fairy comes and brings the puppet to life, but not as a real boy, just as sort of a living puppet. Uh, he is paired with a vagabond cricket named Jiminy, who happens to be sort of passing through at the time uh, and is assigned to be the young puppet's conscience. Uh, Geppetto is overjoyed at having some version of a son, <laughs> let's say, sends him off to school. Uh, Pinocchio gets sidetracked by a anthropomorphic fox and his anthropomorphic cat sidekick named Honest John and Gideon, uh, who trick him into becoming an actor in Stromboli's marionette show, where Pinocchio is renowned for not having strings. Uh, he is able to escape that uh, with some help from the Blue Fairy. Then he lands himself uh, in more trouble with an evil coachman who is rounding up boys to take them to Pleasure Island, where they carouse and party and have a great time until they're turned into donkeys and shipped off as slave labor uh pinocchio and jiminy escape that only to find to return home to find geppetto is missing um and that he has been swallowed by a whale named monstro so they voyage to the bottom of the ocean to find the whale eventually enter the whale help geppetto get out uh pinocchio sacrifices himself to save geppetto's life uh, and then is brought to life by the Blue Fairy as a real boy, uh, and they lived happily ever after. So that's the that's the plot recap of Pinocchio, which I watched last night. Otherwise, I would not be quite as fresh doing that off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I watched it a few days ago, and then today I I watched a bunch of YouTube commentary and stuff. It's weird. I I know that's like not a revelation. I'm you know breaking news, but. It's it's a weird story. Like, Geppetto is weird. The entire concept is weird. The situations they get into are weird. And I really don't... I don't know. It, it's kind of funny to me. A lot of the uh, research I was doing said that people find this to be, like, one of the best Disney movies ever made, and it's a narrative genius. And I just kind of kept watching it like it was a fever dream. Like, it, it's not quite Alice in Wonderland level of, like, surrealism, but the idea that, like, honestly, any of it, but, but really just the, like, getting a note that said, hey, by the way, your dad's in a whale, go find him, maybe. 
it just it it was odd for me. I don't know. I don't know why that is somehow more odd than any of the other things that happen in fantasy and Disney. But uh, I, I don't know that I'd remember all of the those little intricacies if uh, if I hadn't just watched it. Yeah, and and I think it's one where the source material is somehow more weird, and so like Disney's actually almost simplifying and doing a corrective like I think in the original book and correct me if I'm wrong because I know you have some notes about the original I think he's just an enchanted he's like a magical block of wood that Geppetto makes into a puppet and it's not like the fairy does not exist in in the original story as far as I know the fairy does exist but she doesn't make him alive um I I can verify that but there is a teal haired fairy who is technically part of the story but um i've got the wikipedia page up now but yes so there is a carpenter who had a block of wood and then when he tried to carve it it started screaming at him so he gave it to his neighbor uh who just happened to make it into a puppet i'm not sure why the wood didn't scream when it was being made into a puppet instead of like a table or something but um yeah so He's just magic, uh, a magical block of wood. But there is a fairy at some point. I think the fairy, uh, let's see, the fairy tries to heal Pinocchio later and he lies to her and she uh, doesn't appreciate that. So I think she maybe curses his nose to grow, but she doesn't seem connected with like why he's a a living puppet or, or block of wood in that situation. So it's definitely, uh, you're right, I I think the source material is even weirder, but somehow I'm more okay with that in, like, cartoon form almost, um, or, or, not, that's not what I meant, uh, episodic form. Mm. Uh, so it came out as a book, uh, and that's technically what they adapted, but it actually started as a series of, like, short stories in, uh, newspapers. So it was the story of a puppet, uh, and it just had regular issues coming out for, like, two to three years. And I feel like that would be easier to handle, because you kind of just got one snippet of crazy, instead of, you know, an hour and a half of crazy after another. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I I think that speaks to the episodic nature of this, too, which I think is one of the things that I sort of struggle with. Like, it is weird that, like, you know, within five minutes, there's two scenes of Pinocchio and Jiminy jumping off a cliff into the ocean, Um, which you might not notice if there was, you know, a little if there was like a week break in between those two (laughs) two things. Yeah, I was looking at uh, the live action version and Pinocchio uh, kind of gives all of the it, I say live action, it's not like a real living puppet, but it's kind of like the Lion King situation. Like, it's live action, but it's all CGI. Um, but uh, Pinocchio kind of gives the rundown of everything he's done, and Geppetto's like, in a day? I'm like, was this supposed to be all in one day? Because that makes it worse somehow. And you would think Geppetto, being a person making clocks, would have a better handle on time as a concept. Uh. You know, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, he's he's an artist. So I kind of get the, like, you get so focused on something, you just completely lose track of time. Um, but I, I, 
I don't know. I don't accept that all of this happened in like, I think in the original movie, it's over the course of like three days, but even so, it's just bizarre how much insanity they get up to in that time. Yeah. And, and so overall, you know, they, they, when I say they, you know, Walt sort of has the idea for Pinocchio pretty soon uh, or during the pr- production of Snow White as like a potential follow up. It seems like there were a bunch of things that they were considering. Um, like Bambi was already being like we mentioned last week, Bambi was already potentially earmarked as the next feature. And I think the sense that you get watching it overall, or at least the sense that I got was that they wanted to do everything they could to top Snow White uh, in terms of like the amount of artistry. Like we talked last week about how Snow White from the shorts was like a 10 year leap forward. And this feels like maybe not a 10 year leap forward, but it feels like another major step forward, especially like this is probably the first time I ever watched them in close succession. And you can really see uh, like this has a lot more depth overall, I think is like, you know, a theme, both in terms of the the drawings themselves and the way that they use the uh, multi-plane camera to create, you know, like pans through or cameras moving forward towards or receding from a landscape. Um, there's a lot of a lot of cool artistry in here. But I, like I said, I think you had some notes on the adapt- adaptation and how it came to Walt. Yeah. Um, so as you said, it was a huge push forward and you know we'll talk about that more a little bit later but um so in the broad scheme of things snow white had come out and just shocked the world and then uh walt's kind of big rival studio decided to put out um a their rendition i believe of gulliver's travels uh they were like ah well we will be highbrow we'll we'll you know, hit culture where it is. And they basically stayed on a level with Snow White. So it came out and everybody was like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. And then Pinocchio being so far ahead from just the one before just absolutely blew it out of the water. Um, So, you know, the story idea, um, one of Walt's animators, Norman Ferguson, who he loved, uh, he actually paid Ferguson the same amount of money that he was getting paid um, because Ferguson asked for it and he said, well, you bring more value than I do to the company, so I guess, sure. Um, So Norman Ferguson had brought a translated into English version of the book. Uh, So again, it was originally a series, uh, the story of a puppet. It was made into the book the Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collati. Um, and that came out in 1883. So this was already a pretty old book at this point. Um, but Norman Ferguson had brought it into Disney uh, and Disney just absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, according to Ferguson, uh, as he was reading and as he finished, uh, he was just absolutely laughing he was full of enthusiasm he knew this was going to be kind of the next big thing uh but like you said they were already working on Bambi and that was kind of where they stayed focused while Snow White was kind of in production um nearing the end of Snow White they realized that they were really struggling 
uh, specifically with kind of the poetic language in the Bambi book, uh, which we'll talk about more when we get to that movie. So they decided to go for the easier book, which is, of course, a translated version of a book that was originally an anthology of serial stories in Italian newspaper. I don't know how they thought that was simpler, but they decided that was where they were going next. Um, but it really is kind of a convoluted, crazy thing to try to adapt. Uh, we've already talked about, you know, the story was kind of wild, but they also had translation issues. I mean, they were reading an English version and they had nobody in charge who really could read it in the original Italian, except for one of the very few women on the uh, story working team, Bianca uh, Magili, or Magili, I don't know how to say her name. Um, she was the only one who knew Italian, so she was able to kind of get a dimension of it that some of the others weren't. They basically got the story beats, and she was able to get kind of the, the deeper concepts in it, um, which to her was all a story of what does it mean to be human? Why does the puppet want to become a boy? Whereas everybody else was kind of going, how can a puppet be funny? How can <laughs> a puppet dealing with an evil fox be funny? Uh, you know, just how can all of this be gags? Um, which was kind of the standard formula for most of their shorts, uh, but was very much something that Walt was kind of moving away from at that point. Um, which led to some absolutely kind of wild things in the production that we'll talk about where he literally just shredded everything to bits and said, nope, I hate all of this, let's move on. Um, because it was just kind of such a complicated situation. Uh, as Walt Disney put it, people know the story, but they don't like the character. And how do you go from Snow White, who, you know, maybe wasn't the most interesting character, but was certainly likable, to a block of wood that is just a terrible person. In the original version, uh, when it was coming out, Pinocchio was hanged for his crimes, and that's where the story ended. He literally was just running around being a terrible person, and then they executed him. Um, and the only reason that it kind of came further was because uh, the author's editor was begging him to continue the story, at which point he added in a redemption arc of him wanting to become a real boy. But it really does show, um, if you read the book, that he just was a terrible person. Pinocchio was not a, a character that people would like. Uh, and so really early on, they had to work on how do we make him likable? And that was kind of where they drew in Jiminy Cricket, who's going to be such kind of a huge figure in all of this. Yeah, and and I think from my again limited knowledge of the source material, I think they tried to hang him, and the way that they like wrote it out is that uh, they couldn't hang him. He, like he would literally would just like hang there and keep talking because he wasn't <laughs> alive really. So like he was just a piece of wood. So like the, hang him didn't really do anything uh, to actually you know kill Pinocchio. But yeah, it's a weird. It's a really weird story. It's really weird to think about, you know, I, I really don't know much about uh, Italian history in that time period, but it's just really interesting to me to think of like a bunch of Italian people in 
the 18 you know the 1880s being like we can't get enough of this puppet like this this jerk of a puppet like we just can't get enough of we need more of this like it's such a weird thing for it to be like popular and you know when people today are like oh like you know marvel's doing this weird thing or whatever and i'm like look we're like not we're we're at base levels of weird here like this is no more weird than this pinocchio thing that's been around now for you know 150 years you know you say it's it's wild to think that people couldn't get enough but we literally talked last time about the fact that so many people love Grumpy, whose only identifying traits are not wanting to be doing whatever he's doing and being a misogynist. And also, you know, this wasn't a comic, but if we kind of compare it to comics, everybody loves Garfield, who again, <laughs> it just does not want to be doing anything and wants to basically bug other people and be eating and sleeping so apparently this is just part of the human condition we like these <laughs> weird characters that are jerks for no reason that's that is a really good point uh i hadn't actually thought about it like that um and i really i it's just this the whole thing it's is really fascinating to me again my impression of this source material is it's almost an anti-fairy tale until they're like, you have to write this second half. And he comes up with this redemption arc and, and everything where it, it isn't about moral lessons and it isn't about like, here's how to live your life. And you know, and all, all the character arcs and all those things. And that's something that it feels like the Disney team sort of pulled that out of the story and like made Pinocchio into a fairy tale that it really wasn't before. Cause even that opening that you, is playing off the idea of the fairy tale. Like it's, it's immediately trying to like push those expectations aside. It's like, you know, this isn't a fair, this isn't your dad's fairy tale. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think that Disney did a surprisingly good job adapting uh, several parts of it. Definitely put a lot in there that wasn't there to begin with, but I kind of feel like Shrek is almost a better adaptation just in the idea that sometimes things that aren't supposed to talk start talking and sometimes they're just annoying. I mean, everybody loves Donkey, but he literally was just brought in and they were like, he's a donkey, he can talk, and he doesn't shut up. So <laughs> somebody else has got to deal with him. And uh, I, I feel like that's kind of where it all started out of this you know, we think it's going to be this wonderful thing. It's similar to, I am rambling, connecting all sorts of things, but it's also kind of similar to the gingerbread man. Depending on your version, you know, these people were just trying to make cookies and all of a sudden this man is running around screaming at them, you know, and it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is a sign that magic has always been real and some people have just <laughs> randomly been trying to do their jobs and they're puppets and donkeys and cookies randomly come to life or or maybe that's just an odd thing we've come up with multiple times but um it's definitely kind of this weird source material that did click with people as much as it had to be you know kind of contorted for disney's version to come out um because this actually you know, the only version of Pinocchio that people care about these days is Disney's 1940 version. Uh, and to some extent, uh, Guillermo del Toro's version from last year. Uh, but I don't know if that'll stick very long. 
But there were actually film versions of Pinocchio before this, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, so in 1911, there was uh, The Adventures of Pinocchio, which was a live-action silent film. And then in 1936, there was an Italian company that was working on a full-length animated feature film of The Adventures of Pinocchio. Uh, it ended up, they ran out of money uh, and basically just had to abandon it, which is how Disney was able to get the rights as easily as he was. Uh, but that would have actually been the first cell animated feature film ever, beating Snow White, uh, but they ran out of money and couldn't convince somebody to keep giving it to them. So they didn't have the Roy <laughs> Disney who was able to yeah. keep going to the banks saying, hey, I know that we're already four times our budget, but more money, please? Um, but yeah, it was this huge thing that shockingly kind of kept coming up until the right company was able to bring it to life as Disney was. So, you know, there was a lot that was twisted to make it into the Disney form, but the original had some, you know, powerful staying power of its own. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's a good point. And, and especially watching the live action remake of, of this and the Guillermo del Toro version within a few weeks of each other, there is something in the original idea. And I really like that del Toro sort of takes it in a completely different direction from Disney, but he's clearly doing as much adaptation as Disney did originally. And this idea of making Pinocchio a likable character, like I think, I think Jiminy Cricket briefly appears in the original and Pinocchio like throws like a log at him and kills him. <laughs> Uh, or he leaves or something like that. It's it's um, it's a pretty dark story. And I, I found this really great quote from uh, Maurice Sendak, who was the author-illustrator behind Where the Wild Things Are and In the Night Kitchen, um, and talking about this movie. And he goes, you know, Collodi's book is chiefly of interest today as evidence of the superiority of Disney screenplay. The Pinocchio in the film is not the unruly, sulking, vicious, devious, albeit still charming, marionette that Collodi created. He is rather both lovable and loved. His badness is only a matter of inexperience. And I think that last bit of Disney sort of making it that like Pinocchio, if you want, we can get into the whole conversation about, you know, what is the what is the natural state of man <laughs> kind of thing, going back to like Hobbes and uh, John Locke and everybody. But Disney goes, instead of Pinocchio being an immoral person that or that has to learn how to be moral, he is like a blank, like he really is just a blank slate at mm -hmm. the beginning. And he is rendered as an innocent. And the things that he does wrong are actually just because he does not understand the difference between right and wrong. Um, and so I think that's a really, that's one of the, I think one of the two big changes to, um, the core of this material that makes Pinocchio resonate the way that it does. And I think, you know, I, I want to see if you can guess the other major one. I think you probably can, but. Oh, um, it, it's elevating one of the characters in the story into the status that he holds. I mean, I'm assuming now that you're talking about Jiminy Cricket again, but. Honestly, yeah. all of the characters just went in weird directions. <laughs> True. Um, yeah, I mean, elevating Jiminy Cricket to the status that he had 
fundamentally changed how we see it. Um, because, you know, the, the cricket, as you said, he was in the original, but he didn't have a name. He didn't have much of a personality. He scolded Pinocchio and Pinocchio threw a hammer at him and killed him. Um, like, yeah, that, that was such a huge thing. And then, like you said, changing kind of Pinocchio's base morality. I feel like now there's, we'll talk about a little, a lot of this, uh, in a little bit, but every time something happened to him, I kept just going like, this is Geppetto's fault. And this is Jiminy's fault. Like Pinocchio literally was just born essentially and Geppetto's like, okay, walk to school. You'll be good. Like, this kid doesn't... He didn't know what school was. How is he supposed to know <laughs> the way to school? And him getting distracted... Like, sure, he, he gave in to the, the wrong crowd, but he could have just gotten lost on the street. I mean, it, it, there, there need to be some adult figures here taking care of the block of wood that just became a person. <laughs> Yeah, it, maybe there's a reason Geppetto uh, hadn't become a dad up to this point. And, you know, he seems like he is on the older side of, of middle age, let's say, based on the way that he's drawn here. And yeah, not the best parent. I mean, his his heart's in the right place. But uh, yeah, saying that kid, he, he would have been better off having uh, figure of the cat lead Pinocchio <laughs> to school than just being like, here's an apple and some books. Off you go. I mean, Figaro seemed to be very aware of everything that was going on. So I, I feel like that would have gone pretty well. <laughs> I mean, Geppetto didn't know that even Jiminy was there. So as far as he was concerned, he was just throwing the kid out there. I know that some of the adaptations make it so that, like, Geppetto wanted Pinocchio to be a boy because he'd previously had a child who died. And that makes it even worse. Like, your child yeah. died before, and now you just throw your new child on the street. Um, and then it makes you wonder what, what happened to that child. <laughs> I mean, I, not that a child should ever be born to replace uh, an older child or, or any of that, but yeah, Geppetto, he just does weird things. I mean, his cat has to do everything around the house seemingly he he gets good food for it i'll give him that but you know mm -hmm. the the fish which the fish is a weird thing too gets like belly rubs somehow <laughs> like geppetto just is a weird dude and i i kind of feel like that's thrown in sharp relief We're, i'm i feel like we kind of have to talk about the live action just because it was so recent but the version in live action you watch and you just go, this guy is is kind of dangerously unhinged. He's just... <laughs> and then you kind of look at them side by side. And it's not like they changed much. It's just when he's a cartoon, we can kind of be like, oh, it's a cartoon. And when he's a real man, we kind of look at him and go, I, I'm concerned for you and, and your cat and fish and and the boy that you have you know, magically drug into all of this. Like, I, I don't know. I Geppetto's a great character in a lot of ways, but uh, he, it, he is a bit of a concerning uh, head of household, I'll say. 
I completely agree. I'm glad that he seems self-sufficient from what we know about him, but that's that's as far as I'll go in terms of his mental competence. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't think he's, you know, dangerous. Um, I just think he he's very in his own world, I guess. Um, it's kind of funny. This is also completely off topic, but there, uh, I just watched the new Ant-Man movie and this won't be major spoilers, but there's just a conversation at one point where, uh, Hank, uh, Pym's wife is just like, yeah, his whole life. I mean, he's, he's a genius, but he just really likes ants. <laughs> it, I don't know. It, it's, you know, I, you take the good and the bad and, and <laughs> the bad with Hank Pym is that he's just oddly attached to ants. Uh, which is funny because in the comics there's a lot of bad to Hank Pym, and True. and I kind of just feel like it's the same thing with Geppetto. He's just a guy that really likes clocks and it has weird attachments to things. It's a weird movie, and I think it's, I think the fact that I didn't clock until I was like an adult, the fact that this is a world where we have, like, I guess what I would call quote unquote real animals like not that figaro acts like a real cat but like you know figaro looks like a real cartoon like a, a quote-unquote real cartoon cat and then you have gideon honest john's sidekick who is clearly also a cat but like walks upright and wears clothes and doesn't talk but at least like like he's very anthropomorphized and honest john is a a fox who's walking around and talking having conversations with people nobody's batting an eye at this it's a weird universe. Yeah, I... I mean, this is something I always called out about Disney in general. Like, I've always been troubled with the fact that Pluto is a dog who is treated like a dog. And Goofy, I believe, is a dog that is treated like a person. And there is no explanation for that. And the same thing is happening in this weird world... Where there are animal animals and human animals and Stromboli doesn't bat an eye at the fact that he was dealing with a talking, walking cat or fox. But it's it's a huge thing that this puppet doesn't have strings. Oh boy. I, there was a fox that is like just casually a con man who no one, you know, notices at all. Geppetto didn't seem to think Pinocchio would have any trouble blending in at school. I mean, right. and he doesn't. I mean, not that he gets to school, but when he meets up with all of the uh, kids at Pleasureland, mm -hmm. uh, Lampwick is kind of just, or in, in one of, in the book versus the movie, he's Lampwick and, and Candlewick, I think. And I can't remember which is which. Uh, but Lampwick in, in the movie, for sure, because they call him Lampy, which is funny. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> um, you know, he doesn't seem to, to care that his new friend is a puppet. He thinks Pinocchio's really kind of uh, naive, which he is. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's all he seems to notice. So I just, I, I need to know what the norm is in this world. Because but, things oh. seem to be so weird when it comes to, like, life and souls. All I'll say is I would be much more willing to pay money to see a talking fox wearing people clothes that I could have a conversation with than a puppet without strings. <laughs> like, one is really much more impressive than the other. Honestly, 
I feel like the puppets with strings were more impressive than Pinocchio. <laughs> I, I mean, a, a living puppet, that, that's all fine and good, but, like, there are people who have to make these puppets dance in these, like, absurd ways. That takes skills. If the puppet's just dancing on his own, I mean, so... I, well, I, I will say, Pinocchio's dancing is impressive for someone who never studied. I, sure. I, that it may be the first time he ever actually danced. You know, the things that Pinocchio knows <laughs> and doesn't know how to do, as a fair point, uh, you know, he, he can dance. And I assume that he went through some training to, to prepare for this role um, just because of how well choreographed it is. But it's hard to say. And, you know, he can speak in full, seemingly functional sentences, but then he completely doesn't know how anything else works, and it's just all very bizarre. I feel like that's the tagline of this uh, episode, just, <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, yeah. And so let's let's get into the, the production of it all. Like we're saying, this is their second movie. It really is, uh, I think, a big step forward from Snow White in a lot of ways. Um, for me, one of the things that I wanted to, to bring up about it is Frank Thomas was in charge of the, that dancing sequence that we were talking about. And it's really impressive how much gravity and weight each character is given and the way that, like, especially... In that sequence, uh, the way that Pinocchio moves versus the way those marionettes move, those marionettes look like marionettes. They look like they are being held up by the strings, whereas Pinocchio clearly has gravity affecting on him in a different way. And like w watching that again, I was just completely mesmerized by just like watching the way the those characters move across the screen in a in just a very different way. And it's. There's a lot more subtlety, I think, here than in Snow White as well, in, in terms of the the um, the technique that's being used. The story is not subtle, but uh, <laughs> the you know in, in that technique, it really does sort of bring it to life. And in some ways, I think one of the things that makes this so popular, especially it seems among animators themselves, is that like you know the art of animation is sort of bringing life to an inanimate drawings. And that's what this movie is also about. So there is kind of this like meta layer of bringing to life inanimate, an inanimate object. And like, I, it almost seems like they appreciate like the challenge of that, that they're making this wooden boy seem full of life just through the act of them drawing it and making this sort of like illustrated living storybook. Yeah, I love your point about kind of the meta story there. I, you know, No Strings on Me is obviously one of the most iconic sequences, but I wasn't really paying attention to the other ones because it was so well done that, you know, there's there's kind of two things going on there. The first thing is in the world of the story, they're showing, like, look at Pinocchio compared to the others. But if you look at it as, you know, the animators and, and the artists and everything, you know, they have made drawings of puppets that feel so different that the goal is for you to accept that the puppet puppets are normal and then the Pinocchio puppet is not normal, 
when all of them are just thousands of drawings stacked on top of each other. I mean, yeah, kind of the, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be impressed with there that they were able mm -hmm. to do that so well. And I can't believe I didn't think about it, that you're right. I mean, it is all about who can bring a creation to life. And yeah, that's, sorry, you've blown my mind. So I'm just going to, you know, sit in awe for a second because that <laughs> sounds so obvious, but like... No, that's okay. It, it's a, it's something I hadn't picked up on myself until this viewing of it, honestly. And uh, it really kind of clicked for me in a different way. And, and like I said, this is a movie that I, I deeply, deeply appreciate, even if it's not one that I personally, you know, love. Um, you know, and, and I think you had some more notes around some of the other technical details and a connection to a movie that we also talked about last week. God, there's just so many things to talk about with all of this. When we talk about, like, this was taken 10 years or more ahead, it was happening behind the scenes, too. So, to go back a tiny bit, September 1937 is when Walt was introduced to the story. By 1940, absolutely everything at the company has changed. So Walt brought in uh, Robert March, uh, or March, I, I think I said it the same way both times, and I still think they were wrong. <laughs> so he brought in uh, March to do special effects, uh, which was a distinct response to Wizard of Oz. Um, because they were suddenly creating special effects and they used to just have a drawing in the background or something, but they actually, in Wizard of Oz, made little tornadoes in the studio with the way they had fans positioned. And, I mean, it was absolutely stunning to the audiences. And Walt was always the kind to see a movie and go, okay. That's something that is impressive and I can't do it. Who do I have to buy to make sure that we can do it? <laughs> and so they made a whole new special effects studio. They also added an airbrush department and they actually hired uh, a woman, Barbara Worth Baldwin, as the head of that department, uh, which was pretty rare. They were really about five or six women who were in higher positions than the ink and paint kind of standard uh, workers, but that was a whole new technique to be able to kind of add lighting effects and shading. They were able to add smoke coming out of um, chimneys. They were able to add kind of a shimmer to uh, Cleo's fishbowl. So they just absolutely kind of rebuilt the industry on how they were doing those kinds of effects. On top of that, a woman named Mary Louise Weiser, or Weiser, invented what was called the blend, which was essentially a grease pencil that allowed them to kind of make gradients so that you could have, instead of just blocks of color, you could be blending things. She ended up filing for a patent for that in 1939. So all of these things were new innovations just kind of exploding out of nowhere, all in this two to three year time period. And it absolutely changed how all of this went down. Yeah. And I think, I think that gradient note is something I didn't 
clock until I was reading your notes about it and then went back to like look at a little bit of the movie. But like Snow White feels almost like a coloring book in its color technique where it's like her dress is this pale shade of yellow and the pattern on this dress like this little diamond is red and this one is blue and her sleeve has this color but the colors themselves are relatively flat. Uh, And then seeing the gradients here, there's so much more they do with light and shadow and, you know, um, there's so much water in this movie. There's, you know, a whole sequence that's underwater uh, that looks amazing because there's that sort of light distortion around it. Or, you know, when Pinocchio is like behind the fishbowl and his like face morphs in that way, like it's just there's so much that they're doing that I don't think they would have attempted. It just feels like they wouldn't have attempted on Snow White because they were just trying so hard to get that like together and done and proving out that they could do it. And, you know, here it's, it's again, it's that idea of like, you can't top pigs with pigs. And so like, well, again, it's like, we got to move this forward. We got to, you know, now we're refining our technique and we're bringing new techniques in to do a thing that we know that we can finish. Yeah, I mean, I feel like with how successful Snow White was and and how well esteemed, they kind of got cocky and just went, okay, well, we can do anything. How do we do it? And for this, it worked. Um, I think we'll see in especially Fantasia the ways that even if it was done amazingly, it maybe didn't uh, come back in, in the money that they needed it to. But, I mean, this was just an insane leap forward. I mean, uh, especially with the blend and the gradients, I think as Pinocchio is kind of transforming into the um, donkey, you can really see it in kind of how the, how on earth a puppet transitions into organic donkey (laughs) ears. I mean, that is not something you can just color in between the lines for that absolutely needed that kind of transition point and like you said with the underwater sequences somebody actually tracked this down out of the 88 minutes of pinocchio 76 minutes are either in darkness or underwater which is just a wild statistic to begin with but the way they made lighting work in those environments is just absolutely astonishing there's i have a lot of critiques about this i know we spent like 30 minutes just with me calling everything in the plot weird but (laughs) the way they progress the technology is just really amazing i especially loved how the camera work worked how the camera work worked i especially (laughs) liked how the cameras were able to move and especially in the first couple of minutes once we go to Pinocchio we're going from the sky to a windowsill inside the building and it really feels like moving cameras on the scale that we didn't have in live film until the last you know 20 years I mean it's almost like drone footage (laughs) the way they had it all working and it's just it's amazing I'm just constantly impressed by it yeah, the more the more I watch these movies and the more I try to think about somebody like hunched over a desk drawing with pencil to make this ha- like how you map out a shot like that like with the story like even just with the storyboards but then you have to make it move is just 
it's mind blowing. It really is mind blowing. It is, it is the close. It's it's one of the closest things to magic that I can think of. Where like I understand the principles of it. I understand how drawings work. I understand how when you slightly modify a drawing and you flip through them it looks like it's moving it gives this sort of illusion but how you actually turn that illusion into the stuff in this movie is like you know it's just one of those leaps it's like the difference between like me making you know a a really good meal at home and then going to like a three-star you know michelin star restaurant (laughs) and it's like I, I know that I'm doing essentially the same thing that these people are doing, but I am nowhere. I, I'm on a level that I don't even understand what the difference is in, in technique. Absolutely. In technique and in scale. I mean, it's kind of the difference between making your meal at home for maybe you and your family. And like you said, in the restaurant, not only that they've taken it to another level, but they're making that food for everybody else in the restaurant, too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. With this specific film, with Pinocchio, they had 750 artists working on it, over 2 million drawings, and 1,500 shades of paint that were just for this project, that they made fresh for this. And keep in mind with all of that, I mentioned it before, but I'll go into it more now. June 1939, Walt walked in, took everything they had, and threw it away. That was 2,300 feet of film, thousands of dollars worth, and depending on your source, either five or eight months of work that he threw out and said, nope, I hate it, we're starting over. So not only is it the amazing work you see, but it's all the work that got thrown out before that. I mean, it's just, I, it's just astonishing how much went into it and how well they did it. Yeah, and, and this is, to me, one of the things about this, one of the reasons why I was excited to do this podcast was to sort of, you know, share that. Because I think these are things that we all grow up with. Like, even if, you know, you hadn't sat down to watch Pinocchio start to finish uh, as an adult before, like, you understand, uh, like, you're aware of it culturally. You know, you've seen the characters, Jiminy Cricket pops up here and there. Uh, but then to, like, actually, like, learn about what went into making these things just makes them that much more impressive as the final product as well. Um, and the, you know, and this is a, this is a dark story, you know, it's not an obvious fo- like an obvious follow-up to Snow White would be Cinderella, you know, but all of these early movies, you know, they're, they were talking about Bambi. Obviously we're going to talk a lot about Fantasia. Um, you know, but but Dumbo, Pinocchio, none of these are obvious follow-ups to Snow White. It's not like, oh, we're going to do another classic fairy tale that everybody's sort of familiar with the basics of. You know, like Pinocchio was a known story, but, you know, they had to get it from, they didn't discover it until they were in Italy. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's really sort of taking a chance. Yeah, I think these first five films especially are so different. I mean, I suppose you could argue that Dumbo isn't that different than Pinocchio. It'd be a difficult argument, but you could make that. But everything else is just so different that it's kind of wild to think about how they got from one point to the next and just kept going, uh, now we want to do super lifelike animals where the human is considered one of the worst movie villains of all time and 
now we're going to do essentially a full concert in animation. And, you know, these jumps were just absolutely wild. And, you know, you, we, I've been naming as many names as I can think of. You know, we <laughs> haven't yet named, you know, it was directed by Ben Sharpstein and uh, Hamilton Lusk. Uh, Jiminy Cricket was made by uh, Ward Kimbrell. We talked about that last time and we can talk about it a little more. There are so many names I'm not saying. There are so mm -hmm. many names that are not in the credits, especially. Um, and it's just all of those people were so instrumental to making this kind of magic. And I'm just not sure that it could be made today. Yeah, and, and just a quick word on Hamilton Lusk, uh, Luske. I'm not sure how to correctly pronounce his name, uh, but he was the supervising animator of Snow White, the character. And so then he kind of gets a promotion to be one of the directors of the movie Pinocchio. Um, and he goes on to be credited as director on Pinocchio, Fantasia, The Reluctant Dragon, Saludos Amigos, Make My Me, like all the way through the 40s and 50s, all the way up through um, Donald and Math Magic Land, which was for TV, and 101 Dalmatians, and Mary Poppins. So, you know, he's one of these guys who, like, his name will continue to come up as being a really important part of Walt's overall team in making these movies. Uh, another name I want to make sure we mention is Gooftop, uh, so, yeah, Goof, Gustav uh, Tengren, who basically was kind of like the art director uh, for this movie and really brought out the aesthetic. And what's really interesting is uh, the village that Pinocchio lives in does not look like Italy, really, <laughs> other than the other than the snow-capped mountains in the background. Uh, like the architecture and everything is really based on sort of a Bavarian influence, uh, which Walt described as quaint European. Um, and that really becomes, I think, I think this is really what becomes sort of the, the Disney aesthetic. So this is like what fantasy land in the theme parks is really drawing on is like mixing the medieval fair with this kind of German, uh, you know, fanciful medieval influence to really make, you know, Walt's fantasy land and I feel like this is sort of an aesthetic that becomes you know almost like a house style within Disney like this is close like between this and Snow White when you kind of blend them together like this is what I would I would think of as the sort of the Disney house style whereas like Dumbo is a similar story but like the aesthetics of that are all very American to me um and so it, it's just interesting that this is sort of the you know before we get to the the other princesses, this is really sort of where that European fantasy land uh, aesthetic is really kind of coming from. Yeah, I think that one of the things that we see with the early days, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, how, how do I put this? Um, basically, everyone that worked there was white. But basically, you know, a lot of the head workers were immigrants. The vast majority of the really early ones were. Um, and there are very few women on staff. There are, at this point, I believe, no uh, people of color. But they did have this progressive for the time kind of idea that, you know, Eastern Europe, which in many other parts of the country was looked down on, you know, that was back when, you know, being... German and Polish and such 
got you in sent into uh, the ghettos, they were really trying to bring in all of these different influences that weren't that typical American look. And again, that by our standards is still a room full of mostly white dudes, but it was really kind of diverse at the time by their standards. Uh, it was a massive amount of Jewish people working behind the scenes at a time when, you know, Nazi Germany was on the rise and they borrowed American texts about anti-Semitism. So, I mean, as much as Disney did some really awful things, and we'll talk about that later, um, you know, he really did embrace this kind of non-American vibe early on, which does come from a lot of those kind of Eastern European influences and Eastern European immigrants. Um, they had plenty of their own issues, but um, it, it really was kind of expansive for that time period. Yeah, I, and I think that's a great point. And it's, it's almost hard to pinpoint how influential that becomes in terms of how we imagine and, and picture fairy tales and things um like i said especially in three dimensions in the theme park stuff um and you know we talked a little bit last time about how the core snow white story is kind of very played very straight and then the dwarves are sort of the the, the source of a lot of the humor in snow white and there's not a lot of places to add a lot of humor in pinocchio <laughs> um you know even jiminy cricket isn't really comic relief all that all that much you know figaro as we mentioned you know i mean that sequence at the beginning where it's like this really small sequence but it takes a surprisingly long amount of time when he's opening uh that window for geppetto because mm -hmm. Geppetto's like i forgot to open the window that's where a lot of this comic relief comes from and i think there's a lot up top because they know how dark the story is going to get um but it's not a funny movie like I, I would hesitate to call Pinocchio a movie for children yeah that's actually one of the interesting things that I had read about with kind of the uh competitions of the animation groups uh so Gulliver's Travels which I mentioned before was being put out at that time and the studio went okay Snow White has shown that this could be kids movies so we're gonna dumb everything really really far down and this movie absolutely does not do that. Um, if anything, most of the humor is adult humor. Um, Jiminy Cricket, for, for as much as he is the moral character, is very lecherous, especially in the beginning with the, the clocks and, and the kind of carved pieces. There's a lot of butt jokes, which are not like kid fart jokes as much as like sexual jokes. I mean, even the humor is not what I would call children's entertainment. And as you see, you know, children get transformed into donkeys and thrown in cages. I mean, it's dark. All of yeah. this is so dark. And it's just, yeah, I don't know that I feel I should have watched this as a child if I in fact did. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think it's really interesting, um, you know, as, as we sort of move into talking about the release and, like, initial reaction, this does sort of feel like that sort of audience-critic split that we find ourselves talking about so much today, where, I, you know, it, it, my impression is that Pinocchio was very much an instant critical darling, and it, it did have its audience, or it was popular in America, but it never felt 
um, to live up to the absolute pandemonium praise for Snow White. And, you know, it, it's really telling in um, the Walt Disney Archive book that I, I was reading and taking some notes from. You know, Walt basically regarded this as a failure and like they would not really talk about Pinocchio that much unless he was really prompted. Like he always felt disappointed in it. And I think I think it's that gap between how much effort and how much innovation and everything that went into making this. And, you know, through some circumstances that are not anyone's fault in the movie industry, you know, Pinocchio kind of got the short shrift just by the bad luck of when it happened to be released. Yeah, I mean, it, Great Depression, war on the horizon, it, it was not, you know, a, a happy time. And, I mean, like you said, Walt viewed it as a failure. Let's read some of the reviews. Otis Ferguson from The New Republic, it, quote, brings the cartoon to a level of perfection that the word cartoon will not cover. We get around the problem of no old word for a new thing, by saying, it's a Disney. Frank Nugent, New York Times, calls it the best cartoon ever made. It won the Academy Award for best score and for best song. And Walt viewed it as a failure. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, they didn't have the international audience because World War II was brewing. There was still, you know, a depression going on. There was all of this happening and yet it's viewed by the critics as one of the best things ever put out yeah i mean you know the the war had by the time this was released the war had broken out in europe like germany had already invaded poland stuff on the eastern front was already happening the blitz would start later this year so like there was a lot of uh the the european market had basically collapsed for hollywood movies at this point and it really was just just bad luck you know, but it, it still continues to hold up in terms of reviews. Uh, like Sergei Eisenstein, writing a little bit later, said, Sometimes I'm frightened when I watch Disney's films. Frightened because some of the absolute perfection in what he does. The man seems to know the magic of all technical means, but also the secret strings of human thought, images, ideas, and feelings. And so, like, you know, Eisenstein is a very sort of deep thinker about film, especially at uh, at the time that he was writing and you know he was like look Walt's cutting through everything like he's just hitting you right in your sort of like deep psychology um, because the way that they're using the imagery and the storytelling and everything is really trying to tap into you know that sort of base base level yeah I mean it's just all of these critics are, are just absolutely in awe and I think that if it had come out a few years earlier, it would have been just as successful monetarily as Snow White was, uh, perhaps even more. It just had the wrong time. Uh, and there was really nothing that they could have done about that. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it does have a long uh, legacy. You know, there, there's a bunch of uh, theatrical re-releases, you know, as was tradition. Uh, I'm looking in the notes you had. That 1992 restored theatrical release was probably the one that I saw when I was a kid because I would have been six at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember it being scary, but it was like right on the edge of like, 
I wasn't totally like it, the scary part would be like over before I could like totally freak out, <laughs> you know, but it, it like made me uncomfortable and like really anxious uh, watching some of those sequences. And there's a bunch of scary parts all the way throughout like Monstro by the time we get to him is like almost a relief that he's just a big whale because big whales at least are cool. Whereas like Stromboli is really scary and like him, you know, locking Pinocchio in a cage is very to me, it was very traumatizing, let alone all of the, um, uh, all of the Pleasure Island stuff. And then, you know, one of the biggest legacies here is um, When You Wish Upon a Star, which is, you know, become sort of the, the signature, like, Disney song in a way. And, you know, one of the things that we can lightly track over this is that it's sort of the first element in the, like, Disney uh, studio logo that you know like i grew up with and they keep doing new new and new versions of where you know it's the castle and tinkerbell but the music is when you wish upon a star which is fr- you know from this movie um you know cliff edwards had done uh who was the voice of jiminy cricket you know it's his rendition that's in the movie he had done some other recordings and one of the times that that recording was released uh one side was Pinocchio music and the other side was Wizard of Oz music. So yet another connection (laughs) to (laughs) Wizard of Oz that I wasn't aware of. When You Wish Upon a Star is kind of right up there with Mickey Mouse and Tinkerbell in terms of like a discrete thing that is strongly identified with uh, the Disney company. And, you know, when we get into the 50s and 60s, um, that was in the opening sequences of all of the uh, Disney anthology television programs. And then since the 80s, it's been in that production logo, like I said, with the castle and everything. Um, And then just as a little fun fact, the Disney Cruise Line ships use their use when you when you wish upon a star as their sort of like horn like signals or whatever, (laughs) because, you know, it's it's Disney. But uh, it's a great song. Like, honestly, it it really deserves the best original song uh oscar that that it won because it is kind of immortal and like sometimes i hear it and i don't immediately connect it back to this movie because it's so like we could do a whole podcast episode just on that song i feel like because there's so much that's been written about it and it's been used so many times and it has so many you know meanings that you can sort of interpret it from it but it's it it's it's just one of those things that's so iconic it's almost hard to describe yeah i actually so I, I sit here and spout all of these wonderful facts and I am so ignorant about Disney because I just didn't grow up with it. I thought When You Wish Upon a Star was from Cinderella because you didn't hear about Pinocchio as much when I was growing up, but the song became Disney. And in so many ways, I mean, Cinderella saved the studio and we'll get into that as we get closer to that but you know disney put a lot of stock in that and i think that's why i made that connection but pinocchio and snow white and and all of these first five films just brought in so many things that aren't even you know iconic of their film but are iconic of disney as a whole and that's just really i i love the thing about the cruise line that's (laughs) so weird and so disney but i get it yeah and and it's like what else it's like almost like what other song could they use but 
Disney has enough songs where that is also a legitimate question. Like <laughs> there, there are a number of other songs that they could use that would be that recognizable. But then when you think about it, it's like, no, that should be the one. Like that is the one that kind of makes sense. And, you know, I think, again, one of the things that we're sort of tracking in, in the background of all this is like the way that Disney builds its branding and iconography and they will pick you know, a song from this movie, a character from this other movie, a castle from a different movie, and bring all these things together. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, the brand is Disney. And Mm -hmm. like, that's like, they're building their own sort of connective tissue as they go along. And, you know, I really like that quote from the New Republic review that it's like, we have to call these things Disney, because they, they are a new thing that nobody else is really doing the same way. What studio can you even think of that their name matters that much? I mean, Disney is something that everyone knows. They may not know every detail, but I mean, I I know I can think of other studios. I mean, there's MGM and Lionsgate and okay, but that's just a name. I mean, you can't, nothing else quite became... Disney. Disney just was so impactful so consistently in those first few films that there really is no other word other than to call it Disney. Yeah, and, and you know, Walt is a big part of that. And, you know, when we get into like the television era where Walt's on TV every week and you're hearing that same music and Tinkerbell is you know, flying across the screen and waving her magic wand and everything. Like, it really is, I know it's, like, I know it's intentional, but it's hard to know if they knew how, how, just how well they were doing it. You know what I mean? Like, like, they were, like, inventing it as they went along. And yet it's so effective that, like, I can close my eyes and picture all of this stuff, even though I've never seen an episode of the Disneyland TV show in full. I just know it from little clips here and there or you know whatever but it's 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 all become part of this larger you know iconography and branding that is Disney and it's you know it's it's still a name that you know at, at least to me and you know I think a lot of other people but uh it's still a name that you associate with quality Yeah I think that Disney was really good and I don't I don't think they're as good at this as they used to be but they're really good at hiding their bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, so, for instance, with Pinocchio, you know, we've just read all of these stunning reviews and, and all of that. Let's talk about the premiere. So Snow White, they they hired all of these actors to dress up and to play the parts, and it was this star-studded event. Well, <laughs> Pinocchio's premiere. It premiered in New York on February 7th, 1940. It was going to be at the Rockefeller, the Rockefeller Center. So Disney hired 11 actors to dress up as Pinocchio. They painted them, they put them in the costumes, and they put them to sit up on the marquee of the Rockefeller Center. I don't know why I'm struggling with that word. <laughs> um, it was hot out, which is kind of funny because New York in February shouldn't have been that hot. But it was hot out. So they did the only thing that seemed right, and they sent beers up to them. And soon, the men were drunk. They were stripping. They were peeing on passersby. Passersby. They were gambling. They were causing all kinds of trouble. Eventually, they had to just get them and 
I think some of them got jailed, but I'm not 100% sure. This was not a good look. This was a very uh, kind of bad moment. And while it showed up in the history books, so they didn't completely squash it, it's not like that's something that I had ever heard of before I read it. They are very good at hiding their dark sides. And you only get tiny little snippets of it here and there, where maybe one guy got annoyed and told a story to somebody when, you know, they were mad at Walt for throwing out one of their drawings, and thus we find out the darker sides. But otherwise, Disney kind of seized on those perfect little moments and characters and images and made sure that everything else just kind of went away. Yeah, it, it was a lot easier before, you know, Twitter and TikTok, where there'd just be like videos of these guys like <laughs> being drunk up up, up on this marquee. But, but no, I, I agree, because that was not a story that I had heard until... Uh, you know, the, the research for, for this podcast. So, um, you know, and there's, there's a bunch of stuff in this movie that is, I mean, again, we talked about it sort of not really being a kid's movie. Like obviously you have, uh, Pinocchio smoking a cigar. These kids are all drinking beer. Like there's a bunch of stuff that would just not get shown in a movie that children like are, that would be marketed towards kids at least where like you have children engaging in these activities like you can't even show adults smoking in a movie now and and get like a pg-13 i feel like you know and so there's a lot of i don't want to call it sanitization that's happened but it's certainly like watching this day you're like man it's so weird like it just feels weird it feels out of place um compared to you know what we're used to at this point yeah i think and i'm not I don't think that necessarily the standards are too restrictive now. There certainly were times when they were. But I was just kind of watching it, and I think this is the same thing I ran into with Grumpy, where it just seems so unnecessary. Like, Pleasure Island was not at all like that in the original version, and some of the other versions have done it very differently. But, I mean, Pleasure Island, I was really kind of shocked that they didn't have, like, prostitutes. That's that's <laughs> the level that it felt like we were on. I mean, Pinocchio is, is, like, seven, max, and just casually drinking and smoking. And that wasn't necessarily as big of a thing. Uh, they were... The, the, the word jackass was used, like, four times. Which, I understand that donkeys are legitimately jackasses, but they knew that there was something else going on there that wasn't used just for fun. And some of the stuff was just product of its time that's very inappropriate, and, you know, specifically the tobacco land or whatever, uh, they had very racist caricatures of what appeared to be Native American chiefs giving tobacco to children, uh, which is sending all of these messages that indigenous people are trying to kill your children and are somehow connected with enslaving children, which, you know, ironic given who actually enslaved people <laughs> in American history. But I just see these scenes and I go, why did they think that was, like, the right direction? And I think that in particular goes back to the weird and I I don't understand the 
the genesis of this, but um, there was a weird thing around cigar stores using uh, wooden uh, figures of Native American men to advertise outside. So like, you know how like a pawn shop has that three gold balls symbol where like, you know, that like no matter what it's called, that's a pawn shop because that's the pawn shop logo. These wooden statues of Native Americans were often outside cigar stores. And so I don't know, I don't know exactly how that came about, but I be, I'm pretty sure that that's what, that's the connection that Disney is making in this film, at least, uh, which doesn't make it any better, but at least that, that, at least that explains how they got from A to B, hopefully. So I get that to some extent, but so I just looked it up to make sure I wasn't giving false information. So in the original novel, it's called The Land of Toys, not Pleasure Island. <laughs> and literally, children were lured there with the idea that they wouldn't have to go to school and they wouldn't have to go to work. They're literally just playing with toys, playing hide-and-seek, chasing each other. Some were reciting, singing, walking on their hands. This was literally just gymnastics and standard toys leading into them becoming donkeys and disney was like mm, i don't think we want to tell people not to play because then they won't buy our merchandise for you know <laughs> our pinocchio jiminy cricket toys what we're going to show instead is ironically an amusement park that didn't work out too well for them with their future <laughs> but you know drinking and smoking and there's an entire store or building where the point is just to steal things and break things. And I, I just don't know why they decided, like, let's do extremely adult things. When the original book was just like, let's go play hopscotch instead of going to school. And then to bring in, you know, the racial elements and the, the all of the darkness that it went down, it just... It seems like an, an odd choice to go that kind of dark with all of it, I guess. Yeah, I, I tried to actually dig into that a little bit. There's a, on the Blu-ray I have, there's one of the bonus features is like an audio recording of supposedly one of the story meetings or at least clips from some of them around what would become Pleasure Island, which was at this point in production known as Booby Land. Oh my um, God. <laughs> which I think refers more to someone being a boob, uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully, but um, which does make your comment about prostitutes uh, that much funnier. But, um, it, you know, it, it really was trying to really just double down on this whole weird juvenile delinquency. That, like, it feels like it's aimed at teens, but all the kids look like they are, you know, elementary school age. And it's just a very weird disconnect overall. And I couldn't find anything that like really pointed to why that was the choice that was being made other than like Walt had this idea and that was the thing that they went with. Like I couldn't figure out what specifically, you know, was the genesis of, of all this. Um, you know, and, and the only other thing that really jumped out at me is like, I always think of Stromboli as Italian just because the word Stromboli or the name Stromboli like sounds Italian to me, but, um, you know, there's, a, there's one reference to him maybe being that he's uh, of the Roma people, which 
then makes it and he does have a different coloring than like Geppetto who looks very much like a white person he has I mean it's not Geppetto looks Italian like so who knows really but it was just a weird thing that I noticed and you know with the the cart and sort of like the traveling you know sort of quote-unquote low-rent entertainment thing I was like I do feel like this is playing into that stereotype even if it's not super obvious to us today yeah I mean around that time it wasn't a Jewish caricature but they had very similar kind of concepts I mean this was somebody that was happily taking as much money as possible and you know defrauding Pinocchio about what was happening he kidnapped a child and locked him in a cage uh, all of these things tie into those stereotypes that were at the time being used to set up the Holocaust in Europe. They, those same stereotypes were around here, and there was definitely the idea that this con man was, you know, falling into all of these kind of caricatures and, and stereotypes. And there are definitely just those different racist and, and cultural depictions there that didn't need to be there um but we're just part of the world at that point and it's i think on the one hand we look back and we don't catch all of them but on the other hand i think we try to say oh well they didn't know that connotation yet so it you know they didn't know the nazis were gonna do this no but the nazis got the ideas from somewhere um I decided to do some etymology searching just because it bugged me. And, you know, the idea of using jackass as a curse word goes back to the early 1800s. And the idea that a booby was a stupid person went to the 17th century. But the idea of boobies as breasts went back to the late 1920s. So... They knew what they were doing. They were throwing <laughs> words in there that they could get away with saying, oh, no, we just mean donkeys. We just mean stupid people. And I just have to think that, you know, they knew what they were doing with the cultural depictions, too. And yet even today, I was kind of shocked that that was still in there. I mean, there are plenty of scenes that Disney has removed as they've, you know, put these movies out again. And the fact that those depictions are still in there is definitely something that makes you wonder. I'm not saying we necessarily should remove them because it is important for us to be aware that they were there. But it just seemed like there was no point where people thought, is this the thing we want to be putting in our brand as the best cartoons of all time? Are, is, you know, for the thing to top Snow White... Does it make sense for us to have Pleasure Island? It's just an odd choice. Uh, I'll put it that way. Yeah, and I'm very much team Pinocchio, not a kids movie. So I'm I, I'm I'm with you on on a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, on the on the lighter side of Pinocchio's legacy, um, there were there were definitely sort of two breakout characters. I'll say so one. Uh, Jiminy Cricket is someone we will talk about him again on the show in the future. Um, and then what I didn't know until I was looking into it for uh, this show is that uh, Figaro also had 
a few short films um, that he appeared in as a main character. I don't know if you've seen some of the like Mickey and like Pluto shorts where like the intro has sort of like the like um, like starburst kind of thing and has like the character's like face as like this is a Mickey cartoon or this is a goofy cartoon. There's one where like it's Figaro's face <laughs> because he was that popular of a character. And there was one where it was uh, Figaro and Chloe, I think is the name of the goldfish. Uh, Cleo. Uh, Cleo. Cleo, yep. Uh, there was one that they starred together, and they were in the house of the woman from the Three Orphan Kittens short. Um, so that was a character that they sort of brought back and, you know, kind of repurposed, um, which also may explain why I didn't know that Figaro <laughs> had uh, his own short cartoons. And then later on, um, he was Minnie Mouse's cat for a little while. Um, so there's a, a Pluto cartoon where Pluto... Uh, Minnie makes him a sweater that is, you know, fairly ugly. Pluto doesn't want to wear it. He's very embarrassed. And Figaro is sort of like making fun of him the entire time. (laughs) Um, It's cute. Uh, And then within the parks, you know, I talked about the aesthetic um, impact of Pinocchio on Fantasyland within Disneyland. There is Pinocchio's Daring Journey, which is like a dark ride through similar to the Snow White ride that's in Disneyland in California, as well as Tokyo and Paris. Um, it's fine. It's not one of their like best efforts. It's a little slow. It's, it's not, it doesn't have any like notorious kind of features to it. It, It's perfectly fine. Um, there's also Pinocchio village house, which again has that sort of weird German bent to Pinocchio, even though it's an Italian story, but they do serve pizza and macaroni and cheese. So maybe they're trying to split the difference. (laughs) Um, and then, The other thing with the parks is in the 80s, under the Eisner era, there was a big push to, like, bring adults to Disney. And so in the, like, what is now the Disney Springs shopping area, there was a whole park called Pleasure Island where they had various themed nightclubs. So there was a, like, Explorers themed nightclub. There was a nightclub that uh, where every night was New Year's Eve and they would do a countdown to midnight and shoot off fireworks every night. And... As far as I can tell, the only um, the only connection is just the name Pleasure Island. So it's like they picked the name that they sort of had in their back catalog of names for things, uh, named it Pleasure Island. There was not nothing playing on the idea that like, oh, as an adult, if you really you know drink and party it up at, at our nightclubs, you're going to turn into a donkey and we will put you to work. Uh, so I think I think they just probably liked the name and then they invented a whole new backstory for why it was even called pleasure Island in the first place. But I thought that that was a fun, (laughs) a fun thing to bring up. And there was a concept for a Pinocchio sequel, um, before John, it was going to be like a direct to video Pinocchio two, uh, that when John Lasseter took over as the head of the Disney animation studio, uh, killed that project. I did try to do some digging. I couldn't find anything on what the story would have been for uh, the Pinocchio sequel, but I'm very curious just as to what the what the concept even was. I don't think it's a good idea, but I just want to know like what direction they were going in. I feel like you have to go Bride of Frankenstein on it. I feel like that's the only way to go. Pinocchio falls in love and they... <laughs> What to, you know, you have to be uh, brave and truthful and unselfish to become a real boy. What do you have to do to become a real girl? Which would have been even worse, because it, I'm sure, would have been 
very, uh, very sexist view of what it takes to be a girl, but I feel like that's probably the direction it would have gone. Let's give Pinocchio a love interest and try to bring him into that kind of world that... And, and it could have been done well. Uh, I, I'm, I am now judging an idea that I came up with. But, <laughs> you know, you could go the philosophical Frankenstein route where, you know, Pinocchio is the only formerly wooden person to exist. And he just... It, w I was born with the ability to think and speak and be judged for all of my actions and nobody else knows this life give me someone who can understand it but i i think instead they just have pinocchio with like a a bow in the hair and be like oh look it's a woman there <laughs> yeah, you go I, I have i have no idea i do think your uh your previously mentioned like adventures of geppetto like a side quill where it's like let's just follow geppetto's storyline through this and then we'll catch up with pinocchio at the end Maybe that would be better. I, I really don't know. I can't think of a good idea, but I don't. I can't think of anything that intrigues me more than the Bride of Pinocchio idea. <laughs> we can kind of maybe use this as a as a pushing off into our thoughts. Not that we haven't been sharing our thoughts the whole time, but yeah, I Geppetto's arc is so weird because he goes, "Oh, Pinocchio's not home yet. Let me look." And he says, you know, nobody can eat until I come back. And the, the cat and the fish are still at the table. And unless I missed something, the next thing we see is Geppetto, the cat and the fish in a boat inside a whale. And I just need to know how we got from point A to point B. <laughs> I mean... I, I would... <sighs> I like the idea of like Geppetto kind of like ending up being a detective. Like he's going to the school and the school's like, nope, never, never showed up. He's like asking around, like, did you, he like has like a drawing of Pinocchio. He's like, have you seen this boy? <laughs> like, you know, and then because there is a, a, there is a scene where he is out looking for Pinocchio and Stromboli's cart mm. passes in front of him. And there is that sense of like Geppetto's on the, on the trail. He's just way too, way behind. <laughs> Because it took him until nightfall to realize that Pinocchio had not, in fact, gone to school, even though he didn't know where it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm i going to make another weird connection. There is... Okay, the Scream franchise is one of my favorite movie franchises of all time. So yes, I'm going to connect this to a horror movie. But to be fair, it definitely is a horror movie. Um, <laughs> but there's a scene in in the very beginning where somebody is about to die and their parents are driving up the driveway and exiting the door but she's unable to scream and there's this moment where we're like her parents are here he's gonna run away she's gonna be okay and then it doesn't happen and i feel like that was the moment with the cart going by as geppetto was walking outside we're just like oh geppetto's gonna stop him Oh, he didn't. Oh, no, this is not going to be okay. <laughs> this movie is going to be longer than 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it the rules of Pinocchio's state of existence never made sense. And that's... I'm, I'm going back into my everything is weird. So, because Pinocchio doesn't get himself out of it. In the live action, I think he lies a lot and then gets the key with his nose 
But in this version, the blue fairy just shows up and is like, what happened? And he lies a bunch and she's like, well, you can't lie to me, stupid boy. Uh, but I'll, I'll release you because everyone can make one mistake, but no more. Like, this guy was born literally today. <laughs> Why are... You know what? Leave... Leave, uh... Jiminy there. He can... He can get stuck in the cage. He should have known better. Pinocchio was literally just created. And he... She lets him go. It's a nice deus ex machina. And then she's like, but never again. It's all on you now. You only get one second chance. Yeah, it's weird. I, I mean, and I I don't really have a better a better way to describe it because, again, Pinocchio is set up for failure from the beginning. He has no moral <laughs> instruction whatsoever. Nobody is like, here's you know, here's how to. I I don't know. It's again that that's why I kind of come back to like this is a movie that I I I truly and. You know, the older I get, the more I appreciate all of the technical and artistic aspects of the actual, like, bringing the drawings to life part of it. The story has never really done much for me and still doesn't do all that much for me. Yeah, I I will admit that it is not the kind of bad or, or non-effective story that I didn't feel anything. Because... Mm-hmm. As those children are turning into donkeys and being thrown in cages and screaming, I want my mom, I feel something. They they got me. But Pinocchio and, and Jiminy just run away and he gets to become a real boy and live a happy life. But there are lots of children that were just abandoned to be, you know, put to, to work in the salt mines and or killed and... That was just how it is, and in the book, uh, his friend, uh, Lampwick, who is Candlewick, I believe, uh, just got sold to the farmer who lived next door and was almost killed because he wasn't a good enough work animal. Am I supposed to feel like that's okay? Because even when it's not Pinocchio, even when these kids have been told right from wrong and have presumably been alive for years instead of hours i'm still not okay with that like this is not the situation where i'm like haha you're the villain and you deserve this like the evil queen gets drastically killed she gets killed like four times over and i'm like okay cool you you tried to kill a child because she was kind of pretty i i don't feel like that with the with the the other children they were just abandoned to face their punishment yeah, some of the labels on those cages include the carnival and salt mines. So it's a real it's a it's a real luck of the draw as to and if you if you can still talk, forget it. You're not going anywhere, um, which may be just as bad. It is weird that you know even with the way that Hollywood was at the time, like there's no sort of justice for these villains. Like Pinocchio escapes, but like Honest John is still out there, Stromboli is still out there monstro if you think that he's a villain is still out there like you know i'm hoping geppetto never decides to go like deep sea fishing again because that whale's <laughs> just gonna f- track him down like it's a very odd movie on a, a number of levels and 
because I, I agree with you. I feel all the emotions I'm supposed to feel. It is very effective at what it's doing, but it's, you know, this is maybe the like fourth time I've seen Pinocchio because it's not one that I'm like, like as a kid or as an adult where I'm like, you know what? I've had a rough day. Let me put on Pinocchio and just like <laughs> have a real feel good time about it. It's, it's yeah, it's it's not one that sticks with me that way. Where even something like you know Cinderella or Snow White is a thing where occasionally I'll be like, you know what, I haven't watched it in a while. Let me go back to it. Pinocchio is not one that I I find myself revisiting that often. Yeah, I, you know, I I feel like this is such a back and forth podcast episode because we're going <laughs> on and on about how amazing it is one minute and then the next minute just tearing it to shreds, but. <laughs> Technically, it's amazing. Content-wise, it's a, a bit concerning. But going back to what we talked about earlier, they made some of these huge changes. Do you think they worked? So, you know, Walt was concerned that nobody would like Pinocchio because he's just a jerk in the book. Did you find Pinocchio likable? I don't find him unlikable um like it it's hard because he does fit into that sort of like annoying child character archetype in a way where where i'm like i don't really like you but it's not your fault because Mm -hmm. again between geppetto and jiminy cricket and the blue fairy no one's really given you enough to work with here (laughs) like you are like i do just kind of view him as an innocent where yeah and it it kind of follows that that similar pattern to snow white and i think snow comes out better in the end especially with the points that you made last week where she is actively at least wishing for things and she is actively doing making some big choices in her story you know things just kind of happen to pinocchio he stumbles into honest john and right after honest john has seen this ad and, and the whole reason that that whole scheme happens is because Honest John's like, oh, Stromboli. Oh, I wonder if there I can make money off him. And then he's like, oh, there's this wooden boy. Here's an idea. These two things have just sort of fallen into my lap. I'm going to take advantage of this, you know? And then it's it's just a really interesting... It's an interesting story. And again, I think the, the messages of it are all clear. But I felt like as a kid, too, it really... It, it made me feel that, like, oh, if I do anything bad, like, something awful is going to happen to me. <laughs> like, I'm, like, basically, like, this is kind of a movie about child trafficking. And, like... Not even kind of. It is legitimately a movie <laughs> about child trafficking. And so, like, I feel bad for Pinocchio. But it's really not until the, uh, the monstrous sequence that I really even, like, get on board with the characters like I I do enjoy the beginning and ending of this movie I guess a lot more than the middle sections of this movie yeah I I like Pinocchio once he decides to to go save Geppetto um Mm -hmm. like you said I, I kind of just pity him for most of it but I think for me and this is another case where I I take a beloved icon of Disney and just hate them I'm just really upset with Jiminy. Yeah. I mean, he's like, oh, Pinocchio, don't run off to be an actor, which is kind of ironic because obviously this is the entertainment industry sending this message out. Uh, And Pinocchio does make an active choice. He's like, okay, I'll go tell him I can't. And then he walks back over and says, 
Okay, cool, let's go. So I, I will admit Pinocchio actively made the wrong choice there. But then Jiminy just goes, ah, well, maybe it'll be good for him. Maybe he will be successful. And then he goes back and he's like, oh, they like him. Cool. I, I guess it wasn't bad after all. Yeah. You know, and then when they find out that Geppetto was eaten by a whale, because, again, that makes sense. Uh, you know, Pinocchio is like, oh, I'm going to go save him. And uh, Jiminy is just like, but should you, though? I don't know. This seems like a bad idea to me. This seems like a good way to die. And he, and then after listing a million reasons why not, he's like, but I'm with you all the way. I mean, either be concerned for the safety of the child or want him to do the right thing. I, I can understand why you'd argue either way. This kid is talking about... I mean, he tied a giant stone to himself and jumped into the ocean. This isn't good child management. But Jiminy somehow manages to say, be selfish and throw yourself at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> well, and what's really weird about that is he's the one narrating the story and, like, he's not making himself look particularly good. <laughs> like, no. I actually, I completely agree with your assessment of Jiminy Cricket in this movie. And it is, to me very different than Jiminy Cricket the icon you know like the, like the way I think of Jiminy Cricket is sort of this like kindly storyteller like oh let's you know gather around I'm going to tell you this story and like but you know he's not I hope he's not sugarcoating his <laughs> role in this whole thing <laughs> yeah I I mean <laughs> he's just so bad at his job and then at the end, he gets his little badge and he's like, oh, that's very nice. And I'm like, were you not watching what just happened? <laughs> did you do anything? <laughs> he either did nothing or made situations worse pretty consistently. The only good thing he did was help Pinocchio get off of uh, Pleasure Island. Mm -hmm. And even then, it wasn't a conscience thing. It was a I happen to know where the exit is. You know, he wasn't saying, oh, you need to be a good boy. He wasn't even saying, don't drink the beer because beer is bad. He said, don't drink the beer. It'll turn you into a donkey. Oh, I'm too late. Um, here's the exit. Let's run and abandon all of the other children that have been turned into donkeys. Uh, how has he done a good job? How has he succeeded here? Absolutely unearned. Unearned conscience badge. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. You know what? That's Pinocchio, too. I want to see Jiminy have to actually do his job. I want to see him be put on probation as a conscience and have to learn how to do his job right. <laughs> well, I'd watch that. I have one other grievance um, just before we we uh, share, you know, enjoyment and, and good things. Um, one One last thing. Pinocchio was able to survive on the bottom of the ocean as he was trying to find Geppetto. But somehow he drowns. Like, he sacrifices himself for Geppetto and that's what saved him. He was doing just fine on the bottom of the ocean. Where is the logical consistency here? You know, that's a great point. And I have actually never thought about that before. Despite, I will say, 
uh, I really like using the gif of him floating face down in the water. Um, <laughs> that is one of my go-to gifs uh, for people when I'm like, I just can't handle this anymore. Uh, but uh, no, I actually forget that he's like, quote unquote, dead. And then, you know, I do love the gag of when uh, Pinocchio first shows up to Geppetto when they're inside Monstro. And, you know, it, it's the... And I don't know if this is the origin of it or not, but it's the classic thing of like Geppetto's like busy, like trying to do something with the fish or whatever. And Pinocchio's like, you know, Papa, Papa I'm, I'm here or whatever. And he's like, not now, Pinocchio. And then he's like, Pinocchio. And, and they do the same thing where he like comes alive and, you know, Geppetto's like still praying for Pinocchio. And he's like, go, go back to sleep, Pinocchio. You're dead. Like, don't. <laughs> Like, don't interrupt me, interrupt me right now. That is a great gag, but you're completely right about the inconsistency of how Pinocchio is able to function. <laughs> Maybe he, he hit his head on a rock or something. Yeah, just give us, like, one second of, like, oh, well, he took a big breath before he went underwater the first time, and he didn't now, or, or something for the logical consistency. I think you're right with the gag. I hadn't made the connection until you were saying that. But that gag is everywhere. I'm currently thinking about a Doctor Who scene where <laughs> they he's a character appears who has been dead for half a season and he tries to talk to the doctor and the doctor's like, There's something wrong here. Just shut up. I, I shut up, Rory. I, I I'm trying to figure out why Rory is dead. And then it's just like, wait a minute. <laughs> I, and I, I hope that this is the origin of this and, and not just it being lost to time it creates a a wonderful a wonderful gag but i i don't know i shouldn't apply i shouldn't try to apply logic to this i i'm aware of that (laughs) but it just it doesn't quite work for me because of these little tiny leaps and i would love if they had fixed those in the live action but somehow they made them worse so so if if they had been like, oh, Pinocchio's like really waterlogged because he's made from pine, and we just need to like lay him out in the sun for a couple of days, would that would that help explain that for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, maybe. Honestly, my suspension of disbelief. I love fantasy. I am I am here for all sorts of things as long as there are rules that they stick to. So you don't have to give me a real-world explanation. You just have to give me an explanation. If it's literally just, like, the speed at which Monstro sneezed him out, like, knocked Pinocchio unconscious, and that's why he wasn't able to breathe and drowned, that's fine. Just tell me that. I don't know. I'm, I'm too harsh on some of these little nitpicky things. It doesn't matter. I know that, but... Yeah, and, and I know you know that, which is why I can, like, tease you about it a little bit and not feel bad about it. I do want to know if Geppetto ever, like, established whether or not Pinocchio had a pulse originally. Because maybe they were, like, thinking he's dead because, like, they're like, oh, he doesn't have a pulse and he's not breathing. But he's made out of wood, so maybe he doesn't have either of them in the first place. And so maybe he is just, like, like exhausted <laughs> somehow. I think that's a good point. And that's... An area where I think the book did it better. So I was I was rereading the information about the book earlier uh, to figure out where the fairy comes in. So she uh, saves Pinocchio after he has been executed. 
and she brings in doctors, and one of them says, oh, he's alive, see, he's blinking and stuff. And the other one goes, no, he's dead, he's a block of wood, you know. <laughs> and that scene would have been perfect for that moment. Literally just have Geppetto go, oh no, he's dead, he couldn't have survived that, he's drowned. And Figaro just, like, knocks on him and is like, nope, still wood. I think that would have been great. At just a little bit, and it would have been, you know, perfect. And that's one area where th somehow the source material actually did it better. <laughs> yeah. Any, anything else you wanted to make sure we got in here before we wrap up our time with Pinocchio? Hmm. I know that we have talked about this so long, and I don't want to make this over long. But one more thing I wanted to mention uh, because this will be a trend that we're seeing more of. So just like Snow White, the beginning of this movie was opening a storybook. But as you pointed out in our notes, the storybook is animated this time. Whereas in Snow White, it was a real book. So then we get a frame story within a frame story within a frame story. I'm not <laughs> sure what the real world is supposed to be. And there's other books which include Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland, which Alice in Wonderland had been done by Disney, so I'll give him that. But Peter Pan was not to come out for a while. To my knowledge, he hadn't done anything with that property. I don't know. The, the world of opening storybooks at the beginning of Disney, because it's such a trend, is just such a, a thing I want to keep an eye on. You know, whether it's animated, whether it's live action, whether we're given these hints into other stories. You know, why were these two picked if they weren't the next stories? Because they weren't happening for several years, if not decades. You know, I, I don't know. Did you have any other thoughts about kind of the, the story of books or anything else? Uh, no, I just I, I do think it's interesting that they sort of landed on blending that storybook approach and then also... Jiminy Cricket being the narrator so he is the one actively telling the story and I do feel like if this was done a little bit later they may have you know done an animated Jiminy Cricket on a real book kind of situation um, which you know I think is the thing that we'll, we'll definitely come back to and there are some great there are some great book openings coming up that I'm excited to talk about mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure we didn't uh, miss that one because it's such an iconic part of Disney, like we've talked about so many of the other things from this film. Agreed. But with that, if you wanna if you wanna take us out, go right ahead. Yeah, I've rambled on long enough here. <laughs> um, Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> so next time on Dream with Mind and Heart, we're going to be seeing how Walt and the company pushed the medium of animation even further and brought even more music into it with Fantasia. Please join us. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks for joining us. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you so much to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song.